I'm mostly interested in the process of of the art as it evolves and becomes something else. It's usually not what I intended it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I think that's where it's a, it's learning. And I think I'm also really excited about the idea that a project could go on after I'm not involved with it anymore. And it just has a life of its own. Mm -hmm. um, that's really what drives me. So maybe less the message, because I know that will always be changing and the parameters of what the message could be will always be changing to like definitions of what are what's right and wrong are sort of changing all the time in a way too um so yeah i think i'm hopeful that or <laughs> i'm inspired by by projects that continue to change with their time and don't need uh the initiators to keep going and to be to keep being relevant and moving to people that was mary mattingly She's an interdisciplinary artist who builds sculptural ecosystems that address human consumption and resilience with an underlying theme of how they might play into our ability to preserve through catastrophic events. Two of her past projects, Waterpod and Swale, were barges that periodically docked in certain areas of New York City. Both depended on a level of nomadism and self-sufficiency. She describes Waterpod as a self-sufficient living space on the water that was a shelter, grew its own food, cleaned its own water, and was also a space where she could make artwork. Swale came next. It was an edible landscape, and it applied many of the skills she'd learned from Waterpod. Things like navigating a large vessel through city waterways and how foraging for fresh foods could work in a city with so many rules and regulations. Her artwork comes from a personal place. In 2008, after numerous surgeries and trips to the hospital, she was diagnosed with celiac disease. It was a painful journey. For so long, she didn't know what was wrong with her. So the diagnosis was a relief. She finally had a word to attach to what she was experiencing. That's when she became interested in food. Specifically, she became aware of the inaccessibility to fresh foods how expensive they are, and how many rules and regulations prohibit people from growing their own food in public spaces. At one point, she learned about how a community garden had been shut down due to a real estate development. That was when she realized that spaces like that weren't protected and could easily be taken away. Her interest in the idea of consumption and resilience goes back to her childhood, when she didn't always have the things she wanted. She was born in Rockville, Connecticut, but she grew up in Summersville. Both are small towns, close to nature. She tells this story about how when she was a kid, she and her siblings would make a game out of running as fast as they could to reach a neighbor's barn before he let off a warning shot. So when she moved to New York City, where man-made structures dominate the landscape and overconsumption is common, she began to think about how that affects us how being so reliant on outside inputs can deprive us of our independence. The sheer scale of the trash cycle in New York City, for example, devastated her. Three nights a week, she would see trash piled up on the sidewalks, sometimes taller than her. So here she is, Mary Mattingly. 
Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and and future. future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Do you feel like if it all went down, if the worst case scenario climate disaster happened, would you be prepared? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I think it's happening. I think that I don't, I don't know if I would be prepared. Um, I would like to have a more robust garden, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think that there's, there are a lot of things that I would like to do in community so that there is access to more um, fresh water for drinking, for instance, food, um, shelter. So right now I would say no. <laughs> okay. And, and, and the community things that would be fresh water, shelter, you know, what would it look like for you to be, you know, feel like you're prepared? Um, I think so. I I live in New York City, and to feel prepared there, I think you know we would probably not be building a seawall, but we would probably be thinking about um, more marshland and ways to um, slow storm surges down. And you know, th- I think through systems that um, already work in lots of places in the world. I think, you know, we would also be thinking about having more food growing on site and, um, and stormwater inundation in different ways. So I think that those things are on my mind. Uh, certainly. Yeah. When you think about the future, are you optimistic that we'll figure it all out? Um, I know that people have lots of great ideas and have, um, like, can't always implement them together for many different reasons. Uh, I think that there are things that um, we can certainly figure out though. I don't know, figure it all out. <laughs> I know that's a that's a really big question. And I feel like, um, you know, maybe you have such a, a much more like intimate understanding of this because I, I feel like me, I can be, um, optimistic but i can also be pessimistic but that's like with my limited knowledge and i'm i'm interested to see which one i'll end up on in the course of this conversation oh wow okay (laughs) i mean what are you what are you pessimistic about let's see um in moments i'm pessimistic because i feel like we're not doing enough and then um i work with youth and so that makes me optimistic. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, uh, it sways both ways, I think, for me. Do you think um, you're optimistic when you work with youth because people have a lot of desire to change uh, the status quo? And maybe then you're more pessimistic because you see that that change is stymied in so many different ways? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I, and I see with the youth that they're, so aware of what's happening and, and so aware that 
something needs to be done. Maybe they don't know exactly what that is, but to me, like probably one of the biggest battles is convincing people that something does need to be done and the youth are already there. Yeah. They know that something needs, I mean, lots of people know something needs to happen soon. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and that it's not, and that by doing actions, sometimes that actually gets a response. And, you know, that's, that's one of the many ways to change a system, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that um, in terms of systems change, certainly, like there, there are strategies and um, protest is a really good and strong strategy. And it can also come with ramifications, like the other side can get stronger. Um, I don't know. I think that there there are many different strategies for uh, thinking through systems change, but they all sort of have to work together. Mm -hmm. So where did we land? Do you feel like you're optimistic? Um, I I do. I I am optimistic. I am. yeah, I've been thinking about, I mean, I, I wonder if hope is the right word. I, th- yeah. I think maybe instead of hope, I would, I would say, like, I feel like I have a responsibility to be optimistic. Um, I don't, you know, in my, in my best times, I am. My worst, I'm not. I like what you said about how you feel like you have a responsibility to be hopeful or to be optimistic. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think I, I mean, so many people are doing so much important work in the world and to just give up feels really selfish to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, I, and, and I, like you see the power of people when we work together and am really inspired by that and believe in it. And so that's when I feel optimistic. I mean, I do feel optimistic and I feel like it's a responsibility to keep that feeling uh, alive and to um, also share it and to hopefully propagate it. Yeah, because I feel like, well, first off, that that's a wonderful perspective, you know, that you recognize that so much is being done and that it might be a little irresponsible to be pessimistic in the face of all of that. But also, you know, being negative, I feel like doesn't get us anywhere. No, I think it's, I think it does the opposite. I think it's frustrating and I think it's, um, it can peel people off of feeling like they can be effective. And then at the end of a conversation, people can just walk away thinking, well, I guess there's nothing to do. I mean, I'll just keep myself comfortable. I'll just do what I was doing, which may or may not have been effective. Yeah, for sure. I feel like the, um, the negativity, the, the byproduct of that so often can lead to like, um, inaction, you know, like it's inevitable that's going to happen. So I'm just going to go about my day. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, so that's what I don't want. (laughs) And, and, Uh, I don't think any, you know, most people don't want that who are, who are concerned about futures. So, so your art is about consumption. And I also feel like it's 
about resilience. What got you interested in the idea of consumption? Hmm. I mean, I think initially probably, yeah, that probably goes way back to, um, to childhood and feeling like, oh, there's, you know, this, where I am in my childhood, but there's not, I didn't have the things I wanted, right? Or something like that. And then okay. I, I moved to a big city like New York and there was overconsumption, you know, that's what I felt at least coming from a place where there wasn't that much. And then understanding the trash cycle was a kind of devastating to me. I think just seeing the scale so present all the time was um, pretty mind blowing, but also when you saw where it went and then when you learned you didn't see everywhere it went and it was just, it just kept going. So I guess what I mean is, um, you know, on three day, three nights a week, you would see uh, where I lived, I would see trash piled up sometimes higher than what I could see over on the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. And in the morning it would be gone and replaced in another day with more. And then I knew that it went to Fresh Kills Landfill for a long time and then that was filled up. And then it, from there it went to uh, states around New York and in New York State uh, to landfills there. And that lots of it, of course, is useful and um, deserved to be reused and um, didn't need to go into a landfill where it sits and produces emissions. Um, that's that was maybe the biggest trigger for me. Although mm. when I was able to live on the water pod, which we talked about really briefly before we started the mm -hmm. conversation, um, we didn't have a place for trash. And I think then I really started to notice my own consumption because I was <laughs> very aware of it. It was it was present with me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I had an experience in I think it was 2015 my wife and I took a trip to New York and we met up with a friend who lives in Chinatown and, you know, we're walking down the street and it's trash day and the pile of trash, you know, on the street side of the sidewalk is over six feet tall. And, you know, our friend has a umbrella in his hand and he's like waving it in front of him. And we're like, what are you doing? He's like, um, and he's stepping very high as well. And he's like, I don't want to step on any rats. Mm. And we laugh and he's like, I'm not kidding. And he called them, I think they were, uh, rat cats or cat rats. I think they were rat cats. And we we're like, why do you say that? And he said, because they're as big as cats. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think, um, I, I can empathize with that. And I think I've I've been in uh, places where I've seen the trash that high regularly, and it is, it's is—it's—it's definitely destabilizing, and it made me think about my own consumption in a different way. And also maybe the collectivity of that. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about collectivity of different actions earlier, and I think the collectivity of like building uh, a big landfill together as a, you know, nine million people is also um, mind-boggling. Yeah, that's a lot of trash. Yeah. When did you go down this rabbit hole of thinking about trash and where it goes and how much of it there is? It was after I got back onto land after living on the water pod barge. And 
just realizing that I had stored a lot of things and the things that I needed on the water pod were pretty sparse. And I wanted to figure out, you know, what was there? What did I think I needed? Um, what was I saving for artwork or what was a memento or something that I really wanted to remember? Um, you know, why did I keep the things that I had? Where did they come from? And mm -hmm. you know, what was their value to me? Uh, what was the potential harm they'd caused in their production? And so I started to really dig into it and make sculptures about the things that I consumed or, the, you know, make sculptures with the things that I had consumed. <laughs> Was there a point, you know, as you were going down that rabbit hole of understanding trash and then maybe there was a little bit of like, um, I don't know, shame. Like, I, I feel like I've also gone down this path of becoming more minimalistic mm. and I, I, I think, you know, like, oh, I don't need that. And then if I do get something, I do feel a little shame because I'm like, I really need to use this now, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I did have, I, throughout this project where I started bundling things that were in my possession, I felt shame. And I think I wanted to note that and maybe thought some of the things that I had were embarrassing and that I would display those just because they became almost out of body in that way. They weren't okay. really a reflection of me anymore, but they were a reflection of, um, you know, something more intimate or, or something that could be identified with because it was intimate. Mm -hmm. What were those things you found embarrassing? If you don't mind me asking. Um, maybe it was a letter or a diary or, um, an item of clothing, um, maybe maybe the more personal things that, you know, those are, might be what I'm thinking of, but it could also have been a product or something that I thought okay. was like, was kind of embarrassing to show that I was using because you think I was making these sculptures and they were wound pretty tightly together. So you couldn't really see uh, what was inside of each of the bundles, what, what the objects were that I had collected and then made into these sculptures. But um, if you looked close enough, you could, and, you know, there were some things that were, uh, mementos from my family that were potentially, um, things that I didn't know if they would want to be shared mm -hmm. necessarily, um, or friends or yeah, or products that I had bought. Yeah. That's interesting that you went that direction, you know, the, the personal things that, could almost be mementos, you know, letters from your family, yeah. a diary. Cause where my mind went, where my mind went was like postcards or I don't know, another DVD player for the second TV or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I wanted, um, I wanted to just acknowledge like my entire <laughs> system of use, I think, and, and okay. what I was using and saving and what I was holding on to where things came from. And I think, you know, some things I had from childhood, some things were books that I had maybe from the year before that I thought maybe were embarrassing to share that I was reading. Um, yeah, there were all sorts of things. I think the fact that they were intimate objects and they were on display it in itself is a little bit uh, shameful. 
I wonder if you had a moment where you're like, do I really want to put this out there? Yeah, I think I, I thought about it for um, maybe about eight or nine months before I made the first bundle. And I, I just okay. started piling things in the corner in my studio and thought, maybe at some point I'll do this. And then something triggered me to just take the chance and do it. And I think that that's probably, you know, the challenges are the the most exciting things later. Mm -hmm. So in the moment, it's the biggest challenge and it doesn't feel like the right thing to do. Um, but later on, you recognize maybe why you did it. Mm -hmm. And then it's you when you can see it from a different perspective. Um, like now I can see that there was value in it. And I was really searching to figure out what I needed, what was excess, um, mm -hmm. where things were from, um, how I even obtained them. Um, but yeah, like you said, it was it was also maybe a choice to think through what I was consuming. And I hadn't really even recognized that at first. Do you feel like you've become more minimalistic now in your personal life? That's a good question. I thought I would and I was for a while. And actually, during that project, people started to mail me things, which is really wonderful. I think things that were important to them, objects that people didn't want to keep that uh, resonated in some way, or they thought maybe somebody else should could have. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't ask for them. But um, my, I think on my website, I had my studio address and, and people started to mail me things. And I've collected things since and I started to make bundles every day, um, just small bundles, one a day from they started being from objects that people mailed me. And then I just kept doing it. Um, and oftentimes now it's from things I find wherever I am and just bundle together as a, a daily ritual. What kind of stuff did people mail you? Um, pictures, clothes, some, someone sent me shoes, <laughs> some, um, books, lots of books. Okay. Um, uh, also letters. Let's see. Yeah, somebody sent me um, a few different items of clothing, saying that they had saved them for a long time, for for a long time, and they were like from when they were a child, and they were important, but they were ready to move on from them. I wonder what that's like to get something like that from a stranger that meant so much to them, and that piece that you now own that you have in your possession is your only frame of reference for them uh it's a, like a mystery and i want to decipher it and i want to learn more about the person but i really don't do that much outreach i just say thank you or something like that and say that i'll use it in a sculpture yeah um but i'm not really in touch with anyone you know i haven't haven't maintained friendships from those packages, but it was it was just really interesting and odd that it started happening. And I think it's, um, I think it made me appreciate objects a lot more than I did when I started the project. <laughs> Honestly, I think I was overwhelmed and I felt really burdened by moving a lot and then moving onto this barge and then moving back to land and just realizing that I had accumulated so much mm -hmm. um, and not really knowing what the value of anything was that I had, except maybe the, you know, the value of memory. So 
to yeah to understand other people's values of memory and um and hold their objects i think everything felt special mm-hmm. this might be a weird question but you know i feel like when we have these objects in our life and they mean so much that these objects carry a certain energy to them and I wonder, maybe first off, if, if you also believe that, and then second off, if you do, I mean, that's a lot of different energy, you know, to have in your possession um, with all of these kind of like foreign objects. I do believe in that. And I also can compartmentalize. So I don't get that caught up in that. Okay. Um, but I love the notion of it and i do i do understand that they're they're all heavyweights mm-hmm. um i don't want to lose them <laughs> so i'm careful with them but yeah. i but i also don't want to get too caught up in their in their histories that's why i like for them to be a little bit mysterious yeah you just said that you compartmentalize i wonder <laughs> when you started doing that um, hmm. I don't know. It's a good question. It was probably when I was 19. <laughs> okay. Um, when I moved from a pretty rural, quiet environment to a city, I think I felt like I picked up some coping mechanisms and one of them might've been that. I think I was... Yeah, I don't want to get too therapeutic, but <laughs> I think I was um, trying to, you know, trying to do a bunch of things, uh, really, really hustling, right? And mm-hmm. um, and trying to do them well and effectively and kind of simultaneously sometimes. Um, but, you know, it was, maybe it was I was working my day job having a social life and then doing artwork and those all needed to be in sort of separate compartments so I could work on them to a certain point. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes there's overflow and sometimes they mix. Um, art and life usually mix, but a lot of times the work and art didn't mix. Yeah. So it was a, a healthy separation. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm quiet here for a second because I'm trying to think like, you know, I do the same thing where, you know, I have a couple of jobs mm-hmm. and I have to get myself in these modes and it might sound a little neurotic, but I do that with alarms on my phone, <laughs> you know, and I set the alarm. I'm like, okay, it's time to do this job now. And in that hour, two hour, three hour time frame, that's all I'm thinking about. Yeah. And I've become better and better at that the more the more that I've had to do it. That's incredible. I actually just started <laughs> doing that maybe in, in January, uh, okay. something similar. But otherwise, um, I would try to compartmentalize maybe while doing sort of going back and forth between doing two things that shouldn't necessarily be together. Um, 
And this way of working has really um, provided clarity to a lot of to a lot of the things I want to do. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, no, I love hearing that. I think that's I think that is when compartmentalization really works. You said earlier that you you grew up in Rockville, Connecticut, right? Actually, I was born there, but I grew up in Summersville, Connecticut, which is pretty close. Okay. And can you tell me about that? Um, I grew up on a street called Maple Street, had really close friends that were neighbors, and lived um, in the backyard. There were, it sort of butted up against a lot of tobacco farms and cornfields and um, cow pastures, if you can picture that. Mm -hmm. And I just played outside a lot, got into trouble. <laughs> we had, I had a brother, I have a brother and a sister and they're both younger and maybe about eight or nine close friends that lived on the street. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when we had a water situation, which I've talked about before, probably where from all those farms the especially the tobacco farms the water the drinking water was polluted so we always had to figure out a, an alternative drinking water situation or solution um, but it would also flood pretty regularly in the spring so we did have a situation where we were always there's a basement in these houses and we're always um, bucketing out water from the houses in the mm -hmm. in the spring so when i think about my childhood i think about um, having a lot of time to be outdoors and working a lot of odd jobs, you know, working on those farms, um, working for neighbors and yeah. And also the water situation. Yeah. The water situation sounds like it forced you to be resourceful. Mm. Well, it, I thought about it and I, I think I was a, concerned about it as a young person. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, that certainly stuck with me because I started to make artwork about it not too long, you know, in my, when I was maybe 19 or 20 mm -hmm. and was really concerned about how, uh, water access was, how people were going to access clean water not just in this place that I was from, but, you know, around the country. And I was thinking about it because suddenly I was reading about it internationally and um, people not having access to their drinking water sources because of privatization. And um, so not only was I thinking about maybe water sources being polluted, but also how you, even if you had a, a water source that was healthy, you might not have access to it. Mm -hmm. And what did that art look like? The art about the lack of clean drinking water? Well, it started as maybe not being artwork, but making water filtration systems. And they were just very DIY. And that was maybe something that came from growing up in this place where everything was DIY. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was just finding soda bottles, filling them with pebbles, sand, making carbon, putting that in there and um, making 
you know, a stacked water filter and then trying to make it smaller and smaller so that it could fit into, into something that you could carry with you. Hmm. And then I think maybe the sculptures started to, they started to become sculptures because they became wearable and kind of absurd looking. And <laughs> I wanted them to be used and I wanted them to, you know, be, I, I was trying to imagine scenarios where they could be used for photographs and then they became even, you know, maybe more, well, they became photographic and they became more and more absurd uh, through that process. Is this project called Wearable Homes? Yeah. Okay. And you designed pockets where people could put their mood stabilizers. Was that your humor poking through or was there something more serious going on there? Um, I think it was, I was, uh, Hmm, that's a good question. I think it was both. I think, you know, I was thinking, well, in this future, not only will we need, will everybody need a water purification system mm -hmm. that's wearable, but you will also need, to have access to, you know, if you're living in a, in a space where, um, you have less and less of what you need, what is going to replace that? So, mm -hmm. um, so the mood stabilizer was a necessity, but it was also maybe, um, trying to get those wearable homes to the point where they really, they really felt, uh, dystopic. Like they had everything that you kind of didn't want to need, but needed. Yeah, you know, when I was reading about that project and it's just become more reinforced in this conversation, I, I'm thinking of like, you know, John Carpenter's Escape from L.A. or Escape from New York. And um, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, how people might do drugs in those situations to be able to cope with their surroundings, you know, cause I I'm, you know, this is me not compartmentalizing, right? Like I'm, I'm right, overlapping right. some, some art that I like with, uh, or I guess a film that I like with, um, you know, art that I'm reading about. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, did you just come up with that idea, you know, off the top of your head or was it influenced by something? I think it was, yeah, it was influ I was influenced by everything I was reading and mostly in the news okay. at the time and things would strike me like, okay, well this, so this is happening right now, or people are really turning to, um, depending on this and what would that look like maybe in 20 years from now? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I was interpreting what I was reading at the time. And, and I think that's maybe why I stopped working on that project after a while was because it just felt so devastating to keep um, reinterpreting and, and proposing something that was like more and more um, um, a, a, a step away from um, what I hoped a future would be and maybe towards what I was concerned it could become. Yeah. Um, and that future was very particular, like a very particular way of seeing, um, seeing it, you know, it's not, it wasn't just one, it ended up, ended up being interpreted in a lot of different ways, um, through that project, but still they were all in my mind, very negative ways. You have any techniques of 
separating yourself or getting your mind out of those spaces of, you know, really focusing on things like this dystopian future? Yeah, I think I had to, um, I had to do the water pod project. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what it would be, but I was so intrigued by the idea of thinking that one could be more self-sufficient in a place that is so dependent on outside inputs like New York City. Um, so that was intriguing to me because you can't be really, you are dependent on um, all of the, for instance, the rules and the regulations around New York City waterways to live on the water. So that was what I was proposing is like, what if the water pod could be a self-sufficient living space on the water mm -hmm. uh, that grew its own food, uh, cleaned its own water, was a shelter, and also was a space where in this instance, I could make artwork. You know, it was also, it was home and it was a studio. Um, how much would I be dependent on my day job for income to buy things that weren't supplied by the self-sufficient system, for instance? Mm -hmm. um, would I even need it? Could the, could the system fully support me in a place that is so dependent on uh, outside inputs of electricity, energy, water, food, mm -hmm. um, building supplies and and everything and so of course it was like a, a fraud experiment <laughs> to, mm -hmm. impossible experiment um that project um and when i started it it was for one person it was for me to live on and by the time i got through the planning phase it was an in, like an entire community was involved and they most people were strangers to me i had just met in the past couple of years planning the project and the fact that people came together from like different walks of life, from different experiences and backgrounds, hardly any of them artists, but were engaged in the question of art and what art could do and be in public space. Um, that really changed my perspective on a potential future. I just thought, um, wow, there is so like collectively, these hundred people have so many stories, so much knowledge. Um, people are coming on, you know, when the water pod was finally realized, people would come onto it with so much knowledge and how to redo these systems to make them more robust and stronger. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, I just saw the power of, of that as a potential future and was um, dispelled by the earlier work. Could you describe WaterPod? It was a 99 by 31 foot deck barge um, by 13 feet deep. And then 
so a deck barge is just a flat barge. It doesn't have a motor. It rests in the water and it's tied to a pier. And on top of it, there was a 20 foot or 30 foot maybe wide because it was all the way to the edge of the barge um, geodesic dome. That was a public event space, five gardens around the perimeter that were all annual gardens. Mm-hmm. Four uh, chickens that had their own chicken coop, a 1,500-gallon water tank, uh, four cabins, a kitchen and a shower, a greenhouse, and a gray water purification system, solar panels, and uh, rainwater collection on the rooftops. That project had so many moving parts. Which ones did you find the most challenging? Um, actually, it was probably one of the least interesting parts, but the <laughs> attachment from, I mean, maybe not philosophically, but but realistically attaching the uh, barge to land through a gangway, uh, through a bridge was the most challenging part because it was different everywhere. And the barge moved every two weeks to a, to a new public location by mm-hmm. way of being tugged by a tugboat. And then for those two weeks, there needed to be this bridge in place uh, that connected the land to the water to a moving vessel. It needed to be ADA compliant. It needed to be safe. And um, it was it had to be different at each pier because of the tide differential at each pier. So I think that was actually the, <laughs> that was the hardest part of the entire project. I also didn't want to leave ever just to be the control to an experiment that I thought was important to do. So that was challenging too, uh, just from a social standpoint. Um, It's myopic when you're, when you don't leave the space you live. (laughs) I wonder what that was like to be in a city like New York. You know, you're familiar with New York at this point. And now you're on this barge where your world has just shrunk. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It was it was so cool because, um, well, you wake up to the sunrise every morning. You really are in touch with the weather and the water. And you see the city from the outside perspective looking in at it. But you can't see that much. You only see the first few streets and the building tops. Mm-hmm. Um but then you also see all this action that's on the waterways that's really keeping it's the infrastructure that feels like it's keeping everything afloat to an extent mm-hmm. it's powering it it's where things are coming in and, and leaving the barges with the garbage are going out um <laughs> you know the the people who are keeping the subways from flooding are there every morning and um yeah and it was it was just pretty magical to see the city from that perspective and to not feel the same grind, I would say it, Mm -hmm. it was relaxing. And, um, but it also, I think, you know, maybe this is why I started to, to think about personal objects later. It was, it made me really self-conscious and aware Mm. of, uh, what was in public space and what was in my private space of my little cabin. And how I could maybe keep things private while feeling pretty exposed. What keeps you in New York? Actually, I think it was maybe in part that experience and experiences like it where I just um, felt very welcome and felt like I was constantly learning 
from other people and um, could, yeah, participate in a way that felt like it was making a difference. Do you ever feel like, you know, with this work where you can maybe look at the city as an outsider, do you feel like maybe, you know, that hustle and bustle, like that's not what life should be about? Um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that can be what drives you to, to push yourself uh, sometimes or for me, that's how I feel. Okay. But I, um, but I also think that it drives me to be in opposition to it. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it, it can, yeah, it can inspire me, honestly, <laughs> I think. But I know it's, it can also kill me. So, <laughs> From what I read, it sounded like the atmosphere aboard Waterpod included a crew of artists who spent time there and even some who lived there. Did you notice a transformation in how they thought or even acted? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, so... So the, I said earlier that it was, it was amazing to me that so many people came to the project who had different backgrounds, mm -hmm. but that is, um, but the people who actually wanted, to, who were really intrepid and wanted to live on it and participate in a deep way were artists. And I think okay. that, um, you know, and there were other similarities, like actually a couple of people had experiences living in, in close communal situations and were totally prepared for it. Um, <laughs> and and I think that, and, and you know, I didn't, and I didn't even really think the project would ever happen. I think I was, I was just, I just kept going with the flow and the momentum and um, kept processing the requests in a way that became automatic. Um, so I guess what I mean by that is like there were, how the project got started was there were a number of different uh, city organizations that, that the project would need permits for in order to go forward. And they, um, you know, the requests for those permits just kept coming and it just was a lot of paperwork and a lot of meetings and a lot of kind of roadblocks along the way. And, mm -hmm. um, and from, you know, I like absurdity by now and I just kept feeling, <laughs> uh, this, you know, how wild this journey was. I just wanted to see where it went and, did not believe that. I mean, there were, was a part of me that just thought, oh, this is like, this is the never ending story. It's never going to happen. But, um, but the journey is so fun. Yeah. Um, and then when it did, I was completely unprepared for living on it. And I think everybody else, uh, it was Ian Daniel, Allison Ward, um, Mira and Derek Hunter, and, um, you know, some other people came and went, um, and yeah, I think they were, they were a lot more prepared and I could talk about the details of that if you want. Yeah. Yeah. I think people, you know, I think I was hoping and one, I think I assumed that we could have equal decision-making, um, have a process where we all, we all made, uh, one decision. Uh, after another, after another together. And they're just, A, wasn't enough time in the day. And then B, nobody really felt like they could because they felt like 
my decision would be the final word anyway. So what did it, mm, okay. what did it mean for them to weigh in almost? So I, I don't know. I wasn't doing, I wasn't doing the living situation. Right. And, um, finally everybody just took ownership of one part of the project. So Ian did all of the programming and event planning and Allison was the only one who touched the garden and made all the meals and, um, you know, I just emailed with officials all day <laughs> and tried to get a get the gangway set up at the next location. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then we just talked with we you know, we we spread the the real the fun part was being open during the day and just talking with people when they came on to see what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you guys landed on the idea of compartmentalization. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Delegating <laughs> jobs out to people who either wanted to do the jobs or, you know, that's what they were good at. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, like, I think somebody said this at the time, um, maybe it was the engineer that was, had the engineer working with the water pod who has sailed across the world many times. He said, Mm -hmm. The water moves too fast. You have to make decisions quickly sometimes, and um, you don't have the time to deliberate. But also, if people don't feel ownership over a certain part of the project, then there's nothing that is really at stake. Do you have an example of a time when you had to make a really quick decision? Um, we constantly made quick decisions that were weather related, I'll say. Okay. <laughs> So that could be closing down uh, an, uh, an event that was in process or mm -hmm. um, everybody getting together and tying the, the lines tighter because like there was a, a really strong current. So there were, yeah, there were things that were really immediate like that, usually weather related. Do you ever encounter anybody in maybe your personal life, maybe it's a family member, who were like, what are you doing? Like, what, what's the purpose of this? Um, I'm sure I have, but I've probably ignored them or okay. <laughs> not paid enough attention to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> Maybe it's like some, uh, another compartmentalization uh, technique, but no, I think, you know, people who I don't know that well, will sometimes say things like that. And sometimes I respond um, really thoughtfully and sometimes I get really frustrated. So I don't, yeah. I think I think, I, I think I believe that there are like, that I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't for a purpose, something I believed in because mm -hmm. there's so many ways to live that are uh, not this challenging. So I really have to believe it's important or I wouldn't do it. Yeah. The importance. And then also, you know, the challenge and you also mentioned, if I remember correctly, the chaos, you know, you, you kind of thrived in the chaos. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Um. <laughs> I wonder where that comes from. Hmm. I mean, I like thinking about that. I guess it's, I guess I appreciate a lot of movement and 
um, flow of ideas and people in motion. And um, I like weaving and yeah. I asked that question, I think, because I grew up in a big family mm -hmm. and, you know, having two older brothers, a younger brother and a younger sister and, um, you know, really busy parents. And then also my, my parents owned a business. And so the employees of that business, and it's just, you know, it, it feels like it's a mess, but there's order and chaos sometimes. You think? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, yeah, I have to say when there's enough chaos, it, it orders itself. Um, and I think I have a, like, I didn't, I didn't have a, I had a big extended family, but my immediate family was not that big. And I think we kind of fought for our space a lot. And um, I no I notice now that I do, when I'm working, I do appreciate quiet, but I, mm -hmm. I also can get in a rhythm where I'm working in a place that has a lot of background noise and I, and it, I don't get caught up in a particular conversation and I can just um, get into the flow of that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that um, when there's enough noise, I think that that really works. Okay. Okay. So swale, another one of your projects like water pod is also a floating habitat. Yeah. Yeah. On your Instagram, you describe it as an edible landscape on a barge. It is. Yeah, it was. Okay. Um, it's yeah, it's similarly on a barge because I think I was, um, I realized I knew how I had a strange, uh, skill set after doing the water pod where I could navigate a vessel of that size through the waterways and mm -hmm. knew all the rules at that point. It just was such a process and swale really kind of utilized those rules and, um, was about thinking through land use and what can't happen on New York City's public land, but what could happen on New York's surrounding technically public waters mm -hmm. uh, that are that could be technically attached to public land through this gangway bridge. So people could go onto this barge and they could forage fresh foods, perennials uh, that would need less maintenance and care and it's something that's illegal in a public park, but that you could do adjacent to a public park. You can forage and pick foods next to the park, but not in the park. Okay. So that was the kind of what it was about. It was about maybe being an example of how foraging could work in New York City, how um, it could, you know, some of the fears that the city has about foraging, you know, have to do with over foraging and people picking too much. And they're not being, you know, people picking the wrong part of the plant and maybe getting sick from eating that part of the plant if that's not the edible part. So mm -hmm. there might be an issue around uh, what people know to be edible and what is safe to eat, but also maybe over foraging and taking too much. 30,000 acres of public land and, you know, makes up New York City's parkland, but is also the public space for New Yorkers and just making it accessible to foraging 
actually opens up so many more options for access to food in a city where it's prohibitively expensive to get fresh foods and where it's not available everywhere. And um, so the so Swale is thinking through, you know, are those risks that the city is up against really, you know, what is the value of this space if it was also able to be used for foraging um, mm-hmm. versus the risk of it not being, you know, of of those things happening. So I think that Swale wanted to be an example to see if it could work. And was that the motivation behind doing Swale? It, it was because of how the city prohibits, you know, certain things in certain areas? Uh, it was part of the motivation. I mean, it's, I think everything starts from a personal place. And that for me okay. was I had learned that I had celiac and suddenly all the food was really too expensive that I could afford, you okay. know, that I could actually eat. Yeah. And so I started thinking about fresh foods probably at that point, because before that I was mostly eating bread and um, had a pretty poor diet. But when I knew I had to change and it would save my life, I wanted access to more fresh foods and just found it was expensive was was invited to be uh, part of a community garden and then learned that another one had just been shut down uh, due to uh, real estate development and it was sad it was 10 years of people's labor to establish a really rich robust community garden and Mm -hmm. the fact that it wasn't protected at all and could just be taken away so easily made me think about public parks and then i learned that it was illegal to forage in public parks and thought, well, actually, I mean, we grew food on the water and um, people came on from all over the city and picked that really respect respectfully. And um, I think that could happen in public parks too, like just give us a chance, you know? <laughs> so yeah. I think that's what I was thinking. And it was motivated by your diagnosis of celiac disease. Yeah, that's when I started to think about food. Okay. And when did you learn or get that diagnosis? Um, I got it in 2008, Okay, which was a year before the water pod. And so I, uh, it, so Allison Ward, who was the art, one of the artists on the water pod, who was the sh- one who got to access the gardens was really, um, into making gluten-free meals <laughs> with all the foods from the garden. So I think I had that was the first time I probably ate well in my life. And before that, you said you were eating bread. You were just not eating well. Yeah, I was like eating as inexpensively as I could and vegetarian, which at the time uh, there weren't all the options in the grocery store that there are now. So I think I was, mm-hmm. yeah, I was just eating a, a diet of mostly bread and pasta and some beans and, and things like that, but probably a lot of crackers and stuff like that. Bagels. Stuff with lots of gluten in it. All gluten foods. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, you said something just a minute ago about, you know, that you needed to eat different in order to save your life. It felt that dire. Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah, I had been to the hospital about seven, actually six times without the diagnosis, just with chronic problems. Okay. And, chronic intestinal problems and just operation after operation where 
I really thought I was probably going to die, but didn't know what was wrong with me at the same time. Yeah. So I bet that that diagnosis, you know, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm, I'm, I'm incorrect, but it, it seems like that would be, or feel like, uh, this big relief. It's like, Oh, I have, I have a word to describe what's happening to me. It was such a relief and it, and it drove me into such a spin. I think that I, um, I became like really obsessive about it in the first month or so where I just didn't know what I couldn't eat and what I could eat. And, um, I was pretty paranoid, but before that, I just was going with the flow. Like, I don't know what's happening to me. I'm sick again. Um, Mm -hmm. but as soon as I knew, I just like snapped into this paranoid mode (laughs) where I was like, I can't eat that because it's been on the, you know, it's been in the same room as gluten. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, then you learn what your body can handle and that's where I'm at now. That's great. So you're feeling much better. Yeah, I'm feeling really good. Okay, so Swale mm-hmm. is this dock, and it's floating to different areas of the city. How often did it dock in certain areas? So it actually moved a lot less than the water pot. It moved okay. maybe every three or four months, depending on where it was and would move between Brooklyn Bridge Park, the Brooklyn Army Terminal, Governor's Island, and Concrete Plant Park in the Bronx, and just went back and forth between those piers repeatedly for a few years until the pandemic. And how did you choose those areas? Well, they were areas that the water pod had been allowed to dock and strong ties had been established with community groups there. And when I reached out about the possibility of this project getting funding and happening, um, people got back to me right away from those peers. And I think they were the the peers that I felt, um, they were the locations where there were there was the most excitement about the water pod. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and a conversation just sort of started evolving when I said, when I reached out to organizations near who had their businesses or organizations near those peers and said, this is a possibility. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually how it started. And then after that, after people were initially interested, then it's a process of getting those permits with the parks department for those piers and with um, the Coast Guard for the boat or the, the the dock. What kind of response did people usually have? I think all sorts of responses. Like some people questioned um, the health of the soil or the water before they ate anything from the barge. I think most people were excited a lot of um young people were ready to eat before their parents if they came on together and <laughs> um you know a lot of people i think were just amazed that they could move on to, like go on to this this vessel that looked like land yeah and 
had a hill and had apple trees and had lots of pathways through these hills and started to feel like land when you were on there for long enough and stopped feeling the back and forth motion of the water. And yeah, then you, I think people started to have uh, bigger shifts after they'd been on there for maybe 10 or 15 or 20 minutes and really uh, started to feel comfortable. And then people would think about all, all of these food issues would start to come up like, well, where's the, where's the soil from? Or Mm -hmm. what part of this plant can I eat? What does this do? Or they would come on with lots of knowledge and say, oh, I know this plant. Uh, We made this recipe with it. Or, oh, I wish this plant was here. Or people would bring plants. Sometimes people brought their extra seedlings and would just care for them there. Yeah, that's really cool. It seems like there was this big exchange of information. You know, a big piece of this was education. You know, it was either educating or even being educated. Yeah, yeah. It was a co-education. And I think it was also really cool that people knew things weren't going to be ready for them necessarily before the barge moved to another location, but they would still be there to check out the plants, to help steward, to even give plants for the next for people in the next location and say things like, somebody in Brooklyn's going to eat this, and that's exciting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or people would pick things really too soon, and then they would you know, <laughs> not be ready, and then they would just be like, oh, that's so gross. <laughs> well, that's another educational experience. True. Yeah, very true. Yeah. I wonder what it's like pitching these ideas, water pod and swale to the city. Yeah, I think I think it's that's a good question because it's pitched as an art project, so I think there's less at stake than if it was uh, associated with a university or af- affiliated with a science grant, or you know, there's there's some sort of whimsy with it being a public art project that leaves people, I think, um, with some wonder about it and with some anticipation, they're also unsure about what it will be like. So I think there's there's some um, potential trepidation, <laughs> but, um, but I think overall it, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a technique, I think, that has been working to <laughs> propose this as an art, a public artwork when it's really somewhere in between. It's many different things, but it's, there's a pathway that I understand um, through permitting that uh, involves public art and that is what I do. So Mm -hmm. I think that's really become um, the way that I've learned to talk about them. I just realized my phone is going to die and now I have to figure out what I'm going to do about that. Well, we only only have maybe a couple more minutes. Okay. How much, what's your percentage? 10. How about, how about let's just, let's just keep going and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Okay. Does that sound okay? Sounds good. Yeah. Do you think that that connection to academia makes it easier for the city to accept your ideas? I think it, I mean, hmm. There, I think it could, I think it could go both ways. Um, I think it 
having a connection to the parks department, for instance, was really beneficial for Swale because we had some, Swale had some support in a, in a small grant from the urban field station, which was part uh, U.S. Forest Service and part uh, New York City Parks. And um, having that window in, I think, made the project seem less uh, provocative to New York City Parks Department than mm -hmm. I wanted it to be potentially. You know, I wanted it to provoke <laughs> them to do uh, have more food forestry in New York City Parks. And I think they were sort of like, well, this is you know, we'll see what happens. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have to be that concerned about it because, <laughs> because she <laughs> obviously cares what we think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it can go both ways. You know, I read that in at least one case, one of your projects came to you in a vision. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I had a dream about the one that I just installed um, at Socrates Sculpture Park called Ebb of a Springtide. And I just had had all this um, flooding in my apartment in Brooklyn that was usually when it, it was associated with a storm, like a, a really heavy rain and a high tide simultaneously. And it was just like a minimal amount of flooding and I was on the ground floor. Um, mm, the okay. bathroom was a little bit lower, so the bathroom would flood and the rest of the studio apartment was dry. But then I moved up to the, I finally, like there was an opening in top floor and the top floor I moved up there and I knew there was an issue right away, but I moved there anyway. Uh, I didn't, I feel like I just couldn't get a, out of the lease. And <laughs> that was, that was actually worse than the first floor in terms of the rain events when it would rain it was just leaking in there it was like the walls were bubbling there was a mold issue and i had a really fight to get out of the lease finally i did <laughs> but i was having nightmares in there and i um, made this i made this proposal for the sculpture that was like a deconstructed apartment building uh, with mm -hmm. a water clock inside of it that was keeping tidal time of the East River. And yeah, that's a, a sculpture that just opened last week. Wow, that's really interesting. It's like these, these things happen to you, you know, with um, the diagnosis of celiac or your apartment being flooded and it prompts you or motivates you to respond to those things, you know, in your projects, in your art. Mm. Yeah, it, it feels like the worst possible situation <laughs> in the world. And then I think the way for me to escape it, and this may might be part of compartmentalization to bring it back there, but yeah. is to is to dream about what else it could be. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was certainly the ebb of a springtide. That was what that was literally dreaming about what else it could be. But then um, focusing on that. So I didn't have the, so I wasn't as upset about the not being able to get out of this lease and the landlord and all that. Yeah. It makes it tolerable. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's maybe there's a link back to the beginning of our conversation there too. when we're thinking about um, optimism versus pessimism, like is it's not tolerable to be in pessimism for me. It's yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like thinking through that too. The pessimism is not tolerable. I wonder, you know, why, why is it like that for you? Maybe it's like giving up. Mm. What about you? I think I agree. I, I think mm -hmm. I actually completely agree. You know, I think that maybe it's lazy mm -hmm. to just give up. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we said that in the beginning of our conversation. I, I'm forgetting now, <laughs> but we'll we might hear it on the replay. <laughs> we knew this all along. We just had to talk through it. <laughs> exactly. Do you feel like you're more interested in the art or the message? Um, I'm in. I'm mostly interested in the process of of the art as it evolves and becomes something else. It's usually not what I intended it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I think that's where it's a, it's learning. And I think I'm also really excited about the idea that a project could go on after I'm not involved with it anymore. And it just has a life of its own. Mm -hmm. um, that's really what drives me. So maybe less the message, because I know that will always be changing and the parameters of what the message could be will always be changing too, like definitions of what are what's right and wrong are sort of changing all the time in a way too um so yeah i think i'm hopeful that or <laughs> i'm inspired by by projects that continue to change with their time and don't need uh the initiators to keep going and to be to keep being relevant and moving to people mm -hmm. Getting back to your upbringing in Connecticut, just for a second, mm -hmm. I read that you and your siblings would play this game where you'd run into a tobacco field and then <laughs> run out <laughs> and you'd try to do all of that before the farmer let off a warning shot. <laughs> yeah, I think the farmer would come out. We couldn't see them because their house was just like it was, there were too many fields away, but yeah, we would hear get out of my yard. And then we would hear the <laughs> shot being fired. And then we would just run and scream. <laughs> Was there a point where maybe your parents found out about it and they were like, what are you doing? Probably. Yeah. Like, don't <laughs> go in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We used to be, I think what we were trying to do was we would try to run all the way to the barn where the tobacco was being dried and then, run back and we were so little, you know, we're five years old or something. Yeah. And we didn't really know any better, except we knew that when we did that, we got a rise from someone. So we kept doing it and trying to make it tag the barn or whatever, and then run back. But we would never, we would never get all the way there. <laughs> Cause you know, it was also probably uh, keeping him entertained a little bit. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if he was, if he thought it was funny or if he was just an old curmudgeon. Yeah, I don't know. Probably the latter. Yeah. Scary to think about, actually. <laughs>
Wow, this this battery is still going, but it's looks like it's at the very tip. I only have two more questions for you. Cool. Let's do it. Do you have any projects you're currently working on? Um, hmm. I am yeah, I'm working on um what I'm calling shoal right now, but it's per- a permanent version of swale that is salt tolerant like that uses salt-tolerant halophyte edible plants like tomatoes, potatoes, uh, plants that people are are used to, um, mm-hmm. and also contains a contemplative um, installation that's water-based. So it's almost like a combination of what Ebb of a Springtide is, where it's the apartment building with this water clock inside of it, and then the original, the swale barge that no longer exists. And so it's somewhere in between and it should be permanent and um, at a more fixed location or go between two fixed locations instead of moving all the time. Okay. Um, so I'm working on that and I've been working on f- photographs that are salt photographs of, of moons. <laughs> moons? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they look like moons, but they are um, East River water that, it's salt water and that I put steel discs into a vat of and then photograph them as they change and they refer to the tides, but they're really beautiful and I'm never sure what I'll get from, from the photograph. Hmm. So yeah, I'm doing that too. So in process, very in process, but um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know beyond that. Okay, so my final question, I know your battery is running very, very low, (laughs) is this thought that I had, and it is humans today are generally sedentary, but two of the projects we've talked about, water pod and swale, depend on a level of nomadism and self-sufficiency. Do you think becoming more nomadic and more self-sufficient is important to our survival in the wake of a climate catastrophe? Yeah, I mean, I I do think that um, people are moving more uh, with climate catastrophes. So I think that's already happening. And, um, and I think self sufficiency, I think of it in terms of, and it's the best ways I can think about it are in terms of like, community self sufficiencies. And no, it doesn't really work the other way around. Like it doesn't work if you're the only one who's self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I do think that cities are thinking through their own self-sufficiencies and how they can be less dependent on giant supply chains that are constantly pulling from uh, around the world and then, you know, sending garbage back out around the world. And um, And I think that's, you know, that, can be macroscopic and it can be maybe more microscopic on a smaller personal level. It has to sort of be intertwined and um, happen simultaneously. So yeah, I'm thinking that self-sufficiency and more flexibility with informal building is going to be really imperative and it's going to be more accepted in places it's not. Mm -hmm. It will have to be, yeah. I mean, also in the way that like, like a lot of cities now that are coastal are already letting their first floors go. So 
yeah, that's maybe a form of informal building in the way that I'm thinking about it. It's not like the moving buildings of um, you know, 60s architecture, but it's, it, yeah, it's, it's allowing for, for change in architecture. Well, Mary, those are all the questions I have for you. It's nice talking with you, Cody. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Yeah, thanks for spending it with me. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. Thank you.